and inside your head. This is Nasty Neil. And I'm joined by Eric Braden. What's happening, Neil? Not, not much. I'm talking to Eric Braden. It's pretty cool. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So just saw that you're in a movie uh, that your son wrote and directed, uh, Den of Thieves. Right. And so what, what's that experience like to be directed by your son? Uh, that's a very good question. That's a curious experience. Um, at first, when I got that about 6.30 in the morning to to the set, all the honey wagons are, and I thought, oh, shit, I've done this for so many years. Um, kind of boring. And then I said, wait a minute. These are all here because of my son. <laughs> he wrote and directed this. So that made me feel very good. Yeah. And the, his directing of me was... With few words, he knows I don't like to be directed very much. Um, certainly like input, but I don't like um, uh, nitpicking directors. Can't stand that shit. Uh-huh. There you go. But it was, was a very nice experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, he uses your uh, original last name, which I know you, right. you changed. Uh, uh, how do you feel about that? Because it's uh, kind of, you know, uh, continuing your, uh, your family name uh, uh, that, you, that you had to change. I feel good about that, you know, and uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. I feel very good about that. I feel very good about the um, um, contributions made by German immigrants in America. It's the largest ethnic group in America, unbeknownst to most people. And because of both world wars, uh, no one talks about it. But Germans constitute the largest ethnic group in America. So you can imagine what enormous contributions they have made. So I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. Now uh, I read your book "I'll Be Damned," which I enjoyed uh, a lot. And you know, you. in the book, you're very welcome. And um, it's really interesting that uh, obviously you're born in Germany in uh, during World War II, but you don't, you're not, uh, you don't really get the enormity of uh, the Holocaust and and World War II until uh, you come to America. Right. And so uh, when you when you are in Germany, is it is not just your family, but is it just not talked about? Uh, in, in, like with the culture? It is talked about incessantly on television, and no country has dealt with its own sins more successfully and more thoroughly than Germany has. No country. America barely talks about its own anti-Semitism, talks about its own ra- racism. Took you until last year, two years ago, to have a museum for African Americans, for heaven's sake. Mm-hmm. Uh, England doesn't talk about it, nor does France. So Germany has done a damn good job talking about the sins committed by by uh, the Nazis between thirty three and forty five. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I mean, uh, when you were a kid, was it not talked about, or was you were just too when young? I was, uh, when I was a kid, we didn't talk about that because the overwhelming thing as a kid was the destruction around us. The town that I was born in was ninety six percent destroyed. Mm-hmm. With 500,000 bombs, put your head around that for a moment. Yeah. That means bombs every day and every night. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is what was predominantly on everyone's mind. The moral reckoning with um, you know, that extraordinary crime, the Holocaust, that was dealt with afterwards. started in the 60s, mm-hmm. after I had left. Right. So, um, and ever since, uh, they have been dealing with it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's a big uh, part of your book. It's very powerful, you know, when you, you see Mein Kampf and then you understand, you know, uh, the enormity of everything. How does that how did that change your feeling on some of the roles you did before that when you come to America and you get a lot of uh, like Nazi soldier roles? Well, it, it, um, oh my God, it's it's um, uh, when you become aware of it for the first time, as I did when I saw that documentary. Um you are deeply, deeply affected by it, and I would say it gave rise in me to a deep desire to understand political movements, you know, to understand history, to explain some of that, mm-hmm. that phenomenon. And um, that's what it did. It's, it's, a, it's a deeply affecting recognition of what happened uh, in your father's generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, my grandfather fought in World War II, and right. uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, partly German too. My uh, grandparents are Pennsylvania Dutch, which right. is really Deutsch. I don't know if you know exactly. the history of that, but yeah, exactly. 
So when you uh, when you change the the name, is are there any other things that you um, even before you change name? Is there other things like uh, your accent or anything like you try to change? Uh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm no, not at all. Uh, never was really burdened with uh, uh, with one where you could say, "Oh, he's from Germany." No one ever did that, unless they knew I was from there. And mm-hmm. a lot of people thought I was from England or somewhere in the British Commonwealth. I'd learned British English in school, and beyond that, no. Mm-hmm. And something Just I actually. Good. Uh, something uh, I had actually never heard of was um, like your father was taken away to be uh, denazified, and uh, was that ever anything he talked about? Like his well, experience. He, he died when I was twelve, and mm-hmm. so we never had a chance to talk about it. I had no idea what that was about. Mm-hmm. I just know that we were friends with the English arresting officer, Colonel Stevens from Edinburgh, and uh, we were. I mean, we had. Uh, correspondence with him till 1978, I think. Uh, my mother did, my family did, and uh, um, what they did after the war, the occupying forces, the Brits and the Americans and the French, is they sent anyone who had any kind of, of, of official position, either as mayor or whatever it is, uh, they sent them to be denazified and uh, to teach them about democracy. So... Um, but I didn't know that. I didn't know any of that until I came to America. Mm-hmm. No clue. Yeah. Is that something that you would uh, that you looked into after just to get kind of an idea of what he would have gone through? Well, of course, yeah, absolutely. You know, you you try to understand. You try to understand uh, why uh, someone like my father, who was otherwise a perfectly normal man and a good man mm-hmm. uh, and a good father, would um, turn to that party. Um, of course, that's hindsight, and people in, in, in hindsight are very moral and moralistic very often. Mm-hmm. They don't understand, nor do they take the time to understand why someone would turn to that. I have an uncle, for example, who was totally against it, who was incarcerated by the Nazis, because he was an, op- he was an opponent of that bullshit. So uh, my father went along with it for very obvious reasons, because suddenly the economy was doing better. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, reminds me of Bill Clinton's remark, it's the economy stupid. Well, in that case it was, but in a justified way, because the economy was in, 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 in deep trouble in Germany. After the 1929 uh, Wall Street crash, um, that affected all of the world, and among others Germany, obviously. And then you had the post traumatic um, stresses of having lost the First World War, and um, then you had a super democracy with the Weimar Republic, where you had a lot of parties in German Parliament, too many, and then you had, which most people forget, you had a strong threat of the Communist Party, and you must remember that the Russian Revolution occurred just a few years before, I mean, 1917. Mm-hmm where in all of Russia, everything was nationalized, taken away from private property, okay? Mm-hmm. So people forget that. The, the threat of the Communist Party all over Europe, including England and France, and America, was enormous. And those who were in power were afraid of that. So therefore, they tolerated Hitler in the early years. They said, well, at least he's against the Russians, he's against communism. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? That's yep. a very important thing to remember. And um, uh, what led people to join that party? Well, suddenly they saw people working and uh, people taking off the unemployment lines and they built roads and built infrastructure and all that stuff and not realizing and not wanting to realize Mm -hmm. in whose name and what name they did all that. Mm -hmm. Most important thing is there was bread on the table. Do you know that prior to 1930, People used to go, just take a look at some pictures. People took wheelbarrows of money, useless money, to buy a loaf of bread, for example. Mm -hmm. People have no clue, no idea. Well, this is all made out to be afterwards. It was all about uh, uh, the elimination of of, of, uh, uh, Jewish citizens in Germany. Well, that came later. That was not of utmost importance to anyone. 
mm-hmm. until much later. Okay? Mm-hmm. By that time, they had made a bargain with the devil, and that was Hitler. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you must also remember that after the First World War, after 1918, after the Versailles Treaty, uh, Germany was was sent down a river. Had we abided by the Versailles Treaty, uh, then Germany would still be an agricultural society with a few farms, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So obviously, someone came along who said, "To hell with that! We won't abide by that. We're going to rebuild Germany." and make it a strong industrial nation. And he did. Mm-hmm. So therefore, there was a lot of enthusiasm initially. Mm-hmm. Don't anyone, anyone tell you any differently. It's bullshit. Mm-hmm. So the reckoning with it all came, obviously. The sobering uh, effects came after the loss of the Second World War. And then it all came out. You know, what, what he did with the so-called final solution, mm-hmm. which was... Uh, Concluded upon in 1942, the Wannsee Conference. People forget that too. Was done under cloak and dagger conditions. Not that he hadn't been anti-Semitic before, but no one paid a lot of attention to that. Mm-hmm. Everyone was in America, in France, in England. They all were. Mm-hmm. So there was no news to anyone really, except the extent to which that son of a bitch went. With with um, uh, deciding the final solution is something that happened in Germany and nowhere else. And, and and that, for a German of my generation, is, is hard to, you know, to to live with, to understand. And therefore, I will do everything in my power um, to support Israel and to port, uh, support uh, uh, um, anything that is against anti-Semitism. Okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my obligation as, as, a, as a German of my generation, mm-hmm. period. I thought uh, reading the um, uh, the intro in the book, I thought it was also very topical, even though that stuff is, is in hindsight, as you said, it's still topical today, the rise of, uh, of someone that would be evil and how not necessarily everyone who follows them is evil, but you get us, uh, sw- people can get swept up in, in something like that. So what again? I was just saying, uh, like uh, the beginning of your book was very topical, I thought, today, to today, uh, how someone could follow someone who is evil and uh, rise, you know, as, as a the rise of Hitler is very topical to today. I think in the well, last couple the, of years, the, the essence of fascism mm-hmm. is to simplify complex problems, and another essential part of fascism is to always project an internal enemy, so that it was all yeah, yeah, it's all the I mean, you know, in, in Germany it was the Jews. Uh, when you think of it, Jews more successfully assimilated in German society than anywhere in the world. Anyway, remember that as soon as someone simplifies complex political economic problems, you have to start worrying. Okay? Mm-hmm. And um, um, that's all I have to say about that. Right. So uh, you did talk about you grew up uh, watching American movies. Did you not think of ever acting at that time until you until you came to America? No, it occurred to me once, um, you know, I mean, what boy hasn't who used to watch Clark Gable or um, John Wayne or Marlon Brando or whatever. I mean, you know, you, you uh, that all had an effect on, on us. Um, um, American culture was, was a big thing in Germany after the war. Mm-hmm. No question about it. Thank God. And... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, from Louis Armstrong to, to as I said, the aforementioned uh, John Wayne and, and, and uh, Clark, Clark Gable. I think my mother saw Gone with the Wind 13 times, I think. <laughs> it's one of my mother's um, favorites, too. So uh, American culture played an enormous role. <laughs> and uh, I am very, very glad that America decided to introduce the Marshall Plan in, in Germany after the war. Uh, what a smart thing instead of the Morgenthau Plan, which would have ruined Germany. And the Marshall Plan, the Americans, after the First World War, said, let's not make that that mistake again, and let us help them uh, uh, to become economically viable. And Germany became, obviously, the strongest member of the European Union. But that was only possible because of American forces, Mm -hmm. and later on because of NATO. Uh, Without America, uh, without uh, Eisenhower's decision and then later on Truman and, 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 and all the ones who followed uh, then very importantly much later uh, Bush and Reagan 
or Reagan and Bush, um, Europe would perhaps not be democratic right now. People forget that. Mm-hmm. And I have arguments with people on the left about that, who are very critical of America. And, and, and in other words, when you talk to some Europeans now, I said, what the hell are you guys talking about? Without America's help, without his willingness to occupy Western Europe and to station troops there against the threat of the Russians, we perhaps will no longer be a democracy in Europe. Mm-hmm. One must not forget that. What America has done for the democratization of the world, especially Europe, is inestimable. You can't even begin to to put your arms around how important that was. Mm-hmm. It was the Americans and, of course, the Brits and the French, but it's mostly the Americans. Without the Americans, none of that would have gone. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. So, Without the Americans, uh, they'd probably be speaking German in, in England now. That's right. the truth. Mm-hmm. And without the Americans, we all be speaking Russian now in, in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Not kidding you. It was mm-hmm. that close. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you consider yourself German or American? American. German-American. Okay. Proud of my German heritage, and I love America. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up uh, speaking both German and English? No, just German. And, okay. and English in school. We learn English in school, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, British English, I remember. And um, there you are. Yeah. Oh. So, so when you start uh, acting, is it something you found that uh, came natural to you? Yeah. I, I yeah. I yes. And I, I don't know why. I don't know why it always interested me. To, uh, in German high school, we were graded on, on how well we read and interpreted classical themes, you know, literature. Mm-hmm. Be a good and Schiller, be a Shakespeare, whatever. And, and we were graded on how well we interpreted it, how well we understood it. That has always interested me. I don't know why. Uh, but to, to, to uh, translate something as an actor that was written by someone else and make it real, that's a challenge that has never bored me. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. interesting. Because it's yeah. really interesting how you, uh, you talk about, you know, getting young and the restless and uh, making the character your own. And right. um, before you did Young and the Restless, what what did you think of soap operas? Because you, you talk highly about, you know, what you think of them now. But before you did them, did you have a preconceived notion? I had no notion at all. I didn't even know they existed, to be honest. Okay. I, never, I never watched television during the day. I had no clue. I had no clue. And I talked to a friend of mine, uh, Dabney Coleman, who's a damn good actor and, and was yeah. a good tennis player. You know, I played tennis together. He was very good. And uh, I asked him one day, I said, after I'd been approached to do a soap, I said, listen, tell me about it. He had done one. Mm-hmm. And he said, do it, you'll love it. And um, turns out I did. Yeah. And so uh, you also talked about... Um, it's- you try to change some of the lines, not like a lot, but kind of make them in your own, your own words to begin with. And, and, you know, they were, they were opposed to that. But, uh, before you and the wrestles, was that something that was, uh, done like on other uh, TV shows and other movies? You yeah. Did? In other words, you, you, it's, it's, it's a work in progress. When you do film with a good director, um, or nighttime television or whatever, you go and say, okay, now how, how can we change that? Or can we make that a little bit more, uh, um, part of the vernacular or, or uh, you know, how does this sound? You discuss it with the director, of course, and, and, and you make sure that you do not veer from the intent of the writer mm-hmm. and the intent of the scene. So, uh, but to adhere verbatim, so bullshit, kidding me? Yeah. I mean, even Shakespeare changed things ad hoc, you know, at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it worked, they all do. Mm-hmm. Have to, mm-hmm. unless it's very specific dialogue. And you, of course, you don't change Shakespeare now. <laughs> I said he did that with his fellow actors, but mm-hmm. now you don't because those lines are just absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, and you and you lose the poetry in Shakespeare. If you uh, now it's the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by the sun of York, and all the clouds that lured upon the house, you can't change that. It, 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 you lose rhythm. And um, so certain texts you don't change. You mm-hmm. know. Do you still perform Shakespeare? Yeah. 
not 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 for the last year, but I do. Mm-hmm. Well, what are like the differences uh, between like doing a show or t or, t- or movie and doing like uh, something live with an audience there? Well, um, to do theater is has its own challenge, uh, but the dialogue stays the same. You don't change it. Mm-hmm. You know, unless you work with a playwright, a modern playwright, and perhaps there are certain changes are possible, but uh, usually plays have been gone through over and over again, so you don't change any of that. Um, and that is part of the collective memory uh, of, of, of various cultures in the world. <clears throat> so it is, in a sense, easier because you learn it once and then you repeat it every mm-hmm. night. In daytime, which I think is the hardest medium of all, uh, it's something new every day. Mm-hmm. Something new every day. Maybe similar, but that's even harder to learn than something totally different. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah. I would, did, do the daytime shows go through writers a lot? Because I think you'd there'd be like a high burnout factor from writing. They burn out. Yeah. They burn out. I have enormous respect for writers in daytime. That's the hardest job there is in the industry. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like it. Imagine writing for about 20, 25 characters mm-hmm. and remembering the continuity, remembering what all the various characters are known for, uh, the, the history with that person or that person. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, that's a huge undertaking. I have the greatest respect. Therefore, I insist that actors participate sometimes in making changes on the set because they know their character's history better than often the writers mm-hmm. who are new to the job. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. So there, there's no, no malice intended. It's, it's part of it. It's part of the gargantuan uh, task before writers to, to you know, keep clear lines. It's difficult. Well, right. what, when did you realize, like, you, you really knew Victor as a character? Oh, um, well, I didn't like him at all, at all, initially. And went to Bill Bell, and I said, Bill, I, I, we need to give this man a background that explains why he is who he is. You know, uh, I don't care who the person is, usually there are certain uh, parental dynamics or home dynamics when a boy grew up or a girl grew up that affect the rest of their lives. And um, so Bill agreed to do that, and he came up with a brilliant storyline. And once I did that, mm-hmm. I said, no, I'm going to stay. It was a scene I did with Nikki, Melody Thomas-Scott, who I love working with, and at Christmas time, she asked me in the early years uh, where I was from, and it was all a mystery. And I finally broke down. I told her that I'd grown up in an orphanage had been left on the doorsteps of an orphanage by my mother, who was destitute, and father had left earlier. So once I played that scene, I said, now I'm going to stay, because this character is interesting. Now it explains why he is who he is. And basically, a lot of these guys are basically very hurt. You know, they're angry, mm-hmm. they're pissed off. So because of something that happened in their childhood, where they couldn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And when they get older, they get even. Mm-hmm. Happens to a lot of people. Yeah. In your book, you talk about having rage as a as a kid. Is that something then, like, later in life you channeled into acting? Yeah. I, I, I would say so. Right? Or the sporting field, you know. Mm-hmm. Sports. Or boxing, whatever. I mean, you, you, you channel it. And um, it better be channeled. Because otherwise, you become <laughs> a destructive member of society, you know? Uh-huh. So, so it's it's. I think a lot of creative people have have anger in them. I really do. So and a need to express that, you know. Yeah. So that backstory then for Victor, not only did it uh, explain the character, but right. did it make you like feel uh, a connection to the character then? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, immediately. Mm-hmm. And uh, f- because it is somewhat similar. I could emotionally put my, my head around it. And Bill Bell, I suspect, sometimes knew more about one's personal life than than, than we all realized. Um, he used that. And, you know, I lost my father when I was 12. 
grubbing bombs and all that and grubbing poverty and, and, and what have you. So a lot of that is, you know, I, I grew up tough, simple as it is, and don't take shit. Yeah. So uh, I also noticed there was an interesting contrast in, like, uh, when you play a villain escape from Planet of the Apes, you said, like, people would see you in the street and they'd be angry. And then, <laughs> but then people are very accepting of a villain on Young and the Restless. Well, because he he shows different sides. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? He shows different sides. He shows vulnerability. Mm-hmm. At moments when he's alone or whatever, when you see he's vulnerable. Very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And and that is what makes it interesting. That's why movies sometimes are stupid. Because <laughs> they're black and white. Stupid. Right. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Nighttime television, very often black and white. Well, that's uninteresting. Mm-hmm. The reason I keep on doing this is because it's interesting. It shows the the grayness of characters, you know, and, and mm-hmm. obviously some emotions are predominant. And uh, but it's it's um, it's varied. It's it's far more inchoate and and difficult sometimes to ascertain as to why someone is the way he is. And and it's the unpeeling of 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 those layers that is what makes the character interesting. Do you think some of that's um, uh, the difference between TV and, and movies is just uh, the amount of time because you have more time to explore a character yep. than like yep. an hour and a half movie? Yes, absolutely. No question about it. Of course, then, you know, the movies are movies. I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, you talk about an action movie, it's very simplistic usually. Uh, if I talk about Ingmar Bergman or whatever, that becomes more complicated. Um, um, there's, a, there's a television series what the hell is it called again? Uh, Plays in the Hamptons. It was recently on television. Very good. Mm-hmm. Where they deal with all the backgrounds of the... So what the hell is it called again? I forget, but I'm, I'm looking at it and I said, that's damn good writing. <laughs> that's very good writing. For both uh, male, uh, men and women. Mm-hmm. And uh, long-term relationships between... What the hell is it called? I forget. Mm-hmm. Anyway... Yeah, but I, I think uh, over the last... Uh, if you want to know, I'm more interested in sports and, and documentaries than, than anything uh, fictional. Uh, well, well um, about the sports, because um, it was yeah. a big part of your life, and I'll ask more about the sports, but just the connection to Young and the Restless. Do you think um, once you got to a point where like you couldn't compete in... Uh, you could still do sports, but you couldn't compete like in professional sports. Right. Did the Young and the Restless kind of fill some of that void? Because it is like a, a team... That's uh, you working together? No, no comparison, no comparison whatsoever. None, none whatsoever. This is where, where you know, when some people draw these analogies from from sports and life, you have to be very careful because in, in, in sports is is more simplistic. The parameters are clearly defined. We want you to win the damn game, okay? And this is how we break down the practice into these and these components so that you become better at it. It's all, it is definable, quantitatively definable, primarily in track and field where I grew up. But even in, 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 in football and, and, and soccer, other sports, it's you know, how many points, uh, how many yards, how many, etc. How high do you do a vertical jump in, in basketball, etc., etc. So it's, it's all, it has a clear, defined goal. you got to win. Mm-hmm. Come hell I water. Life is not that clear. It is far more uncertain. It is far more inchoate. It's far grayer in some areas. It it just isn't that clear, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean you may be pissed off with some people in life and then later on they're still friends. It's it just in in sports everything is compressed into 90 minutes in soccer or whatever it is in, in, in football and basketball and you have a clear aim and you want to win mm-hmm. and in boxing in in ufc whatever it is and i have great respect for all of it but it's it's it is clearly defined life is not mm-hmm. life is not mm-hmm. i i always think that actually when uh things like come up about like hall of fames because like a, a athlete, you can go by records and, and right. statistics, but right. uh, something like an act, like an, if there's an actor hall of fame or there's a professional wrestling hall of fame, something like that, that's more, um, 
it'd be more opinion because how can you actually compare who is better? Right. Right. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think that Marlon Brando, who I work with, uh, for that reason, didn't like the Oscars, for example. Uh-huh. How do you, how do you compare some performances? to <laughs> you? They should give two or three Oscars, mm-hmm. you know, right. for best actor, best film. Mm-hmm. How can you decide that's the best film? It's bullshit. Really, but we all want clearly defined winners and losers. And that's mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some some performances and acting that are so brilliant, and and some films that are so great with a different different genre. Uh, they should both get an Oscar. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's just the role itself is going to lean itself to be more like, hey, that's a great performance because it's written so well, or it's like a. Well, of course, it's something it's, important. It's usually, you know? usually, it's it's just a combination of 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 uh, that is why it's so interesting. It, it, it's a combination of the actor, what he brings to it, what the writer has brought to it. Without the writer, there wouldn't be anything, and what the director then does. Uh, some have more influence than others, um, but it's essentially between the writer and the actor, and and. Um, um, it's it's just so interesting that process. You can't, you know, if you take for example a Meryl Streep, uh, as far as I'm concerned, she's a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, she is so malleable and so capable of of slipping into this role and that role, and 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 she is well, she's a genius. She's an exception uh, to the normal rule, you know. Mm-hmm. And what she is capable of doing is just stunning. And then, of course, some actors are not asked to play many different things. Mm-hmm. So it is difficult to judge them. But if I were to judge the life work of someone, and, and I would look at Meryl Streep and say, holy shit, this woman is extraordinary. Just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So what you need as an actor also is that you need empathy. You need to empathize with other people's lives to understand them, mm-hmm. you know? You can't go around and say I don't I don't like this or like that. No, you have to say, wait a minute. How do I put myself into into that person's shoes? And um, anyway, yeah. What what was Marlon Brando like, by the way? Marlon was uh, one of the most you know complex characters. Um, very charismatic, good athlete, uh, strong guy. We used to throw the football to each other behind the stages at twentieth. And um, intellectually very curious, I think lazy, uh, prodigiously gifted as an actor. I mean, prodigiously gifted. And yet, part of him didn't give a shit about the industry. I mean, he had this ambivalent, very ambivalent attitude towards towards the business and acting and, and etc. So, um, we talked politics. We talked history, mostly. Mm-hmm. And he asked me a lot about Germany and... and, and uh, I asked him very often about his whole concern about uh, Native Americans and, and obviously at that time the black-white situation in America. And, uh, yeah, very curious person and very bright, prodigiously mm-hmm. gifted, but with an ambivalent attitude towards towards the business. Mm-hmm. He couldn't stand many aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. I'm about sports because it's a big part of your life and uh, something that you love. If you would have uh, come to America like uh, now, do you think you would have pursued soccer more since it is like a bigger deal right now? No, in America, still not. Anyway. it is. It is. It is becoming much bigger. And uh-huh. um, uh, at that time, for me, it was a way to to make some money. You know, and mm-hmm. and uh, we were paid. We were paid about fifteen dollars a game. Right. You know what I'm saying? And uh, that helped a lot at that time. So, um, no. Um, to be quite frank with you, had I come a little earlier, uh, not at 18, but let's say 14, I would have loved to have played American football. Would have loved right. it. I love American football. Love it. Just love it. And talk about football, you're part of the world now, you're in Massachusetts. Yeah. <laughs> I have the greatest respect, i got to tell you, for um, uh, Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. I really do. You know why? Why is that? Because the man is successful against all odds. Mm-hmm. 
he was the least likely to succeed. He wasn't drafted first or second or whatever. No, he was like the, no he's one of the last. It was only because Drew Bledsoe uh, was was hurt that he even got yeah, a chance. Yeah, but I mean, he, he, he apparently went to Robert Kraft initially, uh-huh. and when he was drafted fourth or fifth or whatever, he said, one day I will win Super Bowls for you. I don't know if that's true or not, but I, that's the anecdote at least. I just have nothing but respect for that guy. Mm-hmm. He's against all odds. He's that successful. Another guy I have enormous respect for. Uh, last night surpassed all records is Drew Brees. Mm-hmm. He's about 5'10". Right. You know, playing against all these giants. And that's just incredible. Another mm-hmm. fan favorite of mine was, was uh, Brett Favre. Mm-hmm. And um, um, then I, I did a film with Jim Brown. My God almighty, what an athlete. <laughs> Holy mackerel, what an athlete. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, then I remember the fearsome foursome of the LA Rams and Deacon Jones and, and Rosie Greer and Merlin Olsen and all those guys. My God. Uh, and last night they had a thing on NFL documentaries, which I love watching. Uh, who's uh, the running back for you? Um, uh, who then they don't went to the Jets? Um. Uh, oh, come on, man. <laughs> uh, he played under, under Bill Parcells. Um, yeah. Is it Eric? Eric something? um, I'm bad with names here. I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm not positive. Holy mackerel, one second here. I have the damn thing somewhere here. (laughs) And I mean, that is, uh, I just saw the documentary last night. And let's see. Oh, yeah. About Curtis Martin. Remember oh, Curtis Martin? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What a great documentary. What a great story. Mm-hmm. My God. What a great, great story. What a moving, moving story. You know, sometimes real life is far more interesting than anything that you see in fiction. And what a great story. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way he grew up and the way he came out of it. And, and it's a fantastic story. Anyway. Uh, he's friends with, with Jim Brown, apparently, and Jim was similarly uncontrollable on the field, you know. Mm-hmm. And Bill Parcells apparently tried to tried to rein him in, and and um, um, tried to rein Curtis Martin in. And yeah. He said, "Let me do what I let me freelance," and he did. And he was enormously successful. Mm-hmm. So was Jim Brown, you know. So mm-hmm. um, anyway. Um, there you are. Yeah. So, um, what position would you, do you think you would have, uh, excelled at or, play, or played? Oh, you know, I, 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 hmm, that's a very good question. I, um, maybe quarterback. I used to throw a lot, you know, through the javelin and then uh-huh. we won the German youth championship. I threw the javelin and, uh, um, played a game in Germany called handball which is team handball, where you throw a lot. Uh, so a throwing position, but I also would have liked to have, you know, tackled people. I, I right. would have enjoyed that. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I Who would? Enjoyed that. Yeah. You bet. Mm-hmm. You know. no, oddly enough, when I went to I high school. I would not like to yeah. play wide receiver. All right. Wide receiver, forget it. Those guys have guts, holy mackerel. <laughs> I mean, they get hit with, you know, they're totally exposed. Mm-hmm. They hit from all sides. Mm-hmm. With the intent to kill or to maim. Right. That takes guts. Wide receivers, a guy like Randy Moss, my God almighty. <laughs> so, uh, but hitting position, oh yeah, would have enjoyed that. <laughs> so, um, what was Jim Brown like uh, when you worked, well, as a person? Uh, Jim, as a person, uh, he and I talked a lot about, uh, at that time, Vietnam and then the civil rights issues and all that. <laughs> and... Um, um, you know, just a, just a, Jim is just a powerful figure. I can't tell you. It's, it's, uh, uh, he's, he's a powerful dude, you know, and otherwise we get along very well. And, um, but I argued with him a lot about issues and he respected that. And, mm-hmm. um, later on, sometimes we play tennis, 
but um, I have nothing but good memories, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned boxing earlier. Um, yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, on MMA, the rise of MMA? MMA is the toughest thing there is, period, outgone, hands down. The toughest challenge there is in sports, uh, in a man-to-man situation. It, it doesn't get tougher than that. It doesn't. Mm. It's the ultimate, hence the ultimate fighting championship. You know what I'm saying? Yes. UFC. I mean, it is, it is bar none. I have the deepest respect for those guys. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, oh, I mean, I, I, you know, box a lot and all that, and that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Up on top, and that's tough enough as it is. But now to suddenly deal with people who are experts in Muay Thai as well, who mm-hmm. kick the shit out of you, and and imagine what you all have to defend in UFC. Mm-hmm. Then you get involved with with guys who who are champs in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Mm-hmm. And now combine all three. I mean, it's just extraordinary. It really mm-hmm. is. Well, extraordinary. When it started, it was really more um, kind of Wild West kind of thing where it was no, uh, well, no it weights. Was, and no... It's, it's the, it's the, when it started, it was the, uh, not really the Gracie brothers, mm-hmm. the Gracie family who had come to America. And uh, they challenged at that time, you know, all the guys who were the top wrestlers or top karate guys or whatever, and, and, and they beat everyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, of course, that is an essential part of, of UFC, is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've met some of them, Hagen Machado and and, and uh, Hickson Gracie and, and all those people, and um, very nice, and I have enormous respect for them. Yeah, Just enormous respect for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, fighters, I knew quite a few... Boxers, obviously, and the bad thing about boxing is that you, uh, you know, damage to the brain uh, from sparring mostly. Mm-hmm. You know, people always think the headgear protects you from from concussions. It does uh, not at mm-hmm. all. It protects you from getting cuts, but it does not protect you from getting a concussion. Mm-hmm. I've heard that, um, like, the boxing gloves actually, in a way, is worse for concussions because being knocked out is kind of like a self defense mechanism where the, the gloves, you won't get knocked out, but you'll get more brain uh, trauma. Yes, well, what, what I think if they had bare-knuckle fighting, um, uh, there apparently are some states that, that are <laughs> uh, permitting it again. Uh, okay. That is probably less uh, deleterious to the head, mm-hmm. to your brain, than sparring with big gloves, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, you spar with 14, 16-ounce gloves. And uh, that doesn't diminish the power behind it mm-hmm. at all. So, um, um, yeah, I, th- I think UFC is obviously harder on the body in many other respects because of all the kicks and the mm-hmm. uh, contortions you go through. But um, I think it's a little easier on the whole, little easier on the head. Mm-hmm. Although, yeah, I think it's a little easier. Less pounding on the head. Yeah, because the training in boxing is sparring. You know, mm-hmm. you spar. Mm-hmm. That means you get hit on the head. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, yeah, it was interesting because I've interviewed Ken Shamrock and uh, Dan Severn from uh, you well, know, UFC early days. Yeah, and, and they and what did, yeah. I was just say? say real quick was they actually said the the hardest part on their bodies when they did professional wrestling because of the constant bumps as opposed to, like, fighting, you know, a couple times well, a year. Well, but that is uh, right. In other words, that's because of the enormous throws and all that. Right. It's a different, totally different thing. But it's, they just said right. it was actually worse on their body than, than that the... That is uh, probably true body. because of the enormous velocity with which they're thrown to the ground, for example. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can imagine. I wouldn't want to do it. I was friends with Jesse Ventura, and mm-hmm. uh, I can only imagine. I, I've never... Uh, never belittled what they must be going through. Holy mackerel. I mean, imagine jumping from those ropes and then almost hitting someone or actually hitting them mm-hmm. and uh, falling full force. I mean, that must be so hard on the body. No question. But it's not comparable to to UFC. That's a very different thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I think it's they it just said it's like the you know the constant falling because you also bump a lot more often than you would. Oh my God! Yeah. And something else. I mean, Shamrock was great, and then Severin was great. Severin was one of the early ones. Yeah. Yeah. I was a great wrestler. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And and we are wrestling. I mean, that that is again different. Um, you don't hit the ground with that impact as you do in, in WWE, mm-hmm. but uh, that takes enormous conditioning. Yeah, real uh, wrestling, holy macro, you know. Mm-hmm. Did did you yourself have any injuries from uh from, from playing sports? I had four brain concussions between the age of nine and twelve, oh. and uh, from ice hockey, from gymnastics, etc. And um, um, thank God, none since. But I remember when I used to spar a lot. Sometimes I came home the next day and was a little swimmy. I thought you better stop that shit, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, if I spar, sometimes I still do. Then it's only to the body, mm-hmm. not to the head. That's that's over with. How, how do you think that will af- affect sports uh, going forward? All the talk about concussions and CTE. Well, um, depending upon more studies, I guess you know. But there are quite a few studies, obviously that show the deleterious side of, of head trauma. And uh, my, um, my suggestion is, and it's purely based on my own experience, it's not scientific at all, but my country doctor, a woman, always ordered, told my parents I had to be in bed for three weeks after each concussion. Three weeks. Wow. No playing with other kids, nothing. Had to be. I remember the loneliness of being upstairs. <laughs> uh-huh. Of course, when you have a concussion, at first everything you know, you you sort of swimmy and, and and kind of a dull feeling around the eyes, and you don't like to see light, and uh, certainly can't read, you can't concentrate, and uh, it ain't a nice feeling. But I, she insisted that I be in bed for three weeks each time, and I think it may have saved me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't know. Uh... See, I didn't think that um, they thought about concussions really uh, until recently, but apparently they did. No, 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 no. This country doctor said, mm-hmm. you stay in bed for three weeks. And she uh, told my parents, under no circumstances, should he continue to be in contact sports. And uh, so that's when I became, uh, joined a track and field club. And mm-hmm. we won the German championship in 1958. I was a discus, javelin, and shot button. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, otherwise I, I obviously grew up playing soccer, but not, not uh, officially, just playing around, you know, backyards mm-hmm. and on the streets and all that. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, I probably would have played that, because later on here in America, I really played it and and concentrated very hard on it. I mean, mm-hmm. won the U.S. Championship, the Open Cup, five times with the Maccabees. I won it once, 1973, first mm-hmm. time. Wow. So what what kind of, uh, do you get like a, a trophy for that? For the Maccabee, of course. Get yeah. A big trophy. I, I know. Yeah. Very proud yeah. of it. You bet. Mm-hmm. You bet. Then I also played tennis uh, when I was over here. Mm-hmm. You know, we couldn't afford to play tennis when I grew up. Uh, we always laughed at those guys. They, they always had white white clothes on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they went uh-huh. to these fancy, fancy tennis clubs. We always laughed at that shit. <laughs> and uh, later on, I began to appreciate it. <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> so, uh, what was your relationship like with uh, Bill Bell, the creator of Young and the Restless? Um, a respectful one. You know, uh, a respectful one. I mean, the man worked his ass off. Uh, he was in the studio at four in the morning, five in the morning, and uh, he worked his behind off and was intensely interested and then um, nothing but respect for him. That's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, did, how did the show change when he passed away? Mm, it has gone through mm, too many changes in a sense. Uh, too many um yeah. Um, yeah. Look, 
it's as I said, very difficult, and and mm-hmm. we have tried to maintain sort of a through line. He laid the foundation. We're still profiting from that foundation, and uh, my suggestion is they better adhere to that foundation. What's that in the background? I believe someone's mowing my lawn. I believe I have a... Someone's mowing your lawn. I have as someone who comes, yeah, comes every two weeks as, and... As long as, they don't, as long as they don't use the damn leaf lower. Right, right. Those leaf lowers should be outlawed, those damn things. <laughs> do you know that one of them produces more exhaust than three automobiles? Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. And by the way, you can get the whole damn thing now electrically. Much cleaner, much better. Mm-hmm. I call them the mo, mo blow and no the the, the mo blow and go machines. <laughs> yeah, they picked a great time to decide to to mow my instruments life. of gas destruction. I mean of of grass destruction. Oh, <laughs> uh-huh. anyway, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, I apologize for uh, but um, for when you play uh, a character for thirty years, Victor, um, Victor Newman. How do you keep it not only interesting for, for the audience, but, like, interesting for yourself? Well, there's self-discipline involved, you know? You go, you learn it, and you say, how do I make it interesting? That's all. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the lives of other people around you, and you compare it with the life you used to lead, which was one of hard scrabble, right. and, <laughs> and barely enough food and all that, and then you say, hey, man, I'm lucky. Mm-hmm. I'm very grateful to be doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got some uh, questions here from uh, from uh, when I mentioned you were going to come on the show uh, from pe- listeners. Nick Keller wants to know uh, what was your experience like doing the movie Ambulance with Eric Roberts? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> well, I I remember, I remember a scene with red buttons, and, and, and I, I played this doctor, this crazy doctor who gave people shots or whatever. I, I, I think I put them into, uh, gave them an, uh, anesthesia, and then I stole their pancreas. I don't know what it was about anymore. Uh, we laughed so hard during that scene that I had to give them a shot. And anyway, um, it was just a fast and furious uh, experience. You know, I was in and out. Um, I have great respect for Eric Roberts. Uh, good actor. He later on was in our show. And I still admire how he managed to deal with a lot of dialogue. He played a defense lawyer, and he had never done a soap before. And he came on, he didn't miss a beat. I greatly respect that. Because a lot of actors who come, suddenly come to daytime and are faced with all that dialogue, uh, you know, pee in their pants. Mm-hmm. And he handled it, I must say, I have great respect for that. He's a very good actor. Mm-hmm. And James Earl Jones, you know, speaks for himself, and and uh, right buttons, of course. It was one of those, um, yeah, you know, good experience, mm-hmm. forgettable but good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heather wants to know. She says her mother-in-law, Billy, wants to know. Uh, does it feel like you're living a double life to play a character over uh, for forty years? Not at all. That's an interesting question, but people have the wrong idea about that. I think actors who say they assume their role, uh, they should go to see a therapist. I mean, that's such, it's a myth. It's when you finish a role, boom, you become so sober suddenly, you immediately uh, are critical, self-critical. You immediately review the scene and say, wait a minute, how did I do this or that or that or that? And then you forget about it. You're on to the, you know, whatever... Uh, daily problems you have in real life or or whatever tasks you need to uh, accomplish or whatever. Uh, you forget about it very quickly. Unless you do a scene badly, then I think about it. I say, wait a minute, I should have done this differently. Uh-huh. That's all. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. And under no circumstances do I confuse the role of Victor Newman with, with Eric Blake. <laughs> you know? I, 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 I wish I had his plane, his private plane, <laughs> Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, forget it. Uh, Rebecca wants to know uh, how did it come about that Victor did some bold and the beautiful? Um, I had 
great respect for uh, Catherine Kelly Lang. Uh, I like her a lot as an actress. And um, I think I expressed it to, to Bradley Bell, Bill, Bill's son, who runs that show. He's a very nice man and a great producer. And uh, that's how it came about, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, when you did that, um, what was it like, though, to, to take the character, I guess, into uh, a whole different cast of, uh, of uh, actors? Well, it's nothing, nothing at all. I mean, nothing? I, I, all right. I, no, not really. I mean, Catherine Kelly Lang was a joy to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all. And the others I hardly met. I know McCook. Uh, uh, um, and, and uh, you know, we, we film across the hall from each other. So you run into these guys all the time. You know? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Stephen wants to know. Watched a video in which you said that you did not like uh, your role in Escape from Plane of the Apes. Uh, why is that? Mm, that's actually very true. Um, um, again, it was this one-dimensional bad guy. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Doctor Hasslein, obviously a German. They sort of modeled it after Henry Kissinger or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, um, you could have actually sort of intellectually defended his role. You know, mm-hmm. you're dealing with people from another planet. Anyway, it, it, it's, that's fine. If you like science fiction, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't. Okay. I'm far more interested in reality. Mm-hmm. Science fiction just simply has never really interested me. Sorry to say well, that's all right. <laughs> uh, Rick, what's to know? Uh, what, what was the experience like to get uh, your star on Hollywood Walk of Fame? One of the best experiences of my life. Yeah, I would say. Uh, winning the two championships, one in Germany, one in America, one in track and field, one in, in, in soccer, um, have to be one of the Four great moments in my life, I would say, is, is number one is the birth of my son, mm-hmm. uh, Christian Gutigast, and uh, I'll never forget it. And uh, then the star in the Hollywood Rock of Fame ranks amongst the top four experiences. No question mm-hmm. about it. Because I remember coming to this town, not knowing a soul, you know, parking cars, moving furniture, washing dishes, barely making a living. Mm-hmm. And a few years later, you're standing there and you're getting the star. Are you kidding? Mm-hmm. If, if that doesn't get you, then then I don't know what does. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah, that was very powerful. Yeah, that was very powerful in your book. You know how it opens, um, kind of like uh, you're getting the you're getting the star, and then looking back at how you got there. You bet. And I'll ask one more here. Is uh, Albert wants to know uh, how did you get the role in Titanic, and what was it like working with James Cameron? Uh, it was great to work with James Cameron. I think he's a genius, period. That's it. Guy's a genius. And I say that about very few people. And um, for me, it was a joy to work with him. And did I want to do it initially? I did not know. It wasn't big enough for me. I, I didn't. I thought, what am I doing this for? And then my son and my wife talked me into it. They said, you're working with James Cameron. I said, so? I said, well, you've got to do it, Dad. I said, well, and I reluctantly agreed. Once I had read about John Jacob Astor, I thought, that's an interesting character. Uh, he's German roots. You know, he was the wealthiest man in America. And his forefathers uh, did fur trading with Indians. And they bought most of Manhattan with that. They're from near Heidelberg in Germany. Mm-hmm. And uh, interesting character. And once I read about him and all that, then I said, okay, but who really made it, uh, you know, palatable and interesting and and welcoming was James Cameron. Period. He he was a fan of the film I did in the late sixties called Colossus, mm-hmm. the Forbin project, a science fiction film, very good one. Mm-hmm. And he he had been a fan of that, so that's mm-hmm. how I got that part. Okay. And uh, what was it like uh, working like on the uh, big sets? I guess. On what? On the set? Yeah. Um, a spectacular set, you know, south of Tijuana in Mexico in Rosarito Beach, and you came on, I mean, whoa, they had built this huge set, huge tanks, mm-hmm. and and they had reproduced one side of the Titanic completely. So at first when I came there, I thought, wait a minute, this is, 
huge, uh, one of those, those, those Viking ships or whatever, and um, those tour ships, and um, or cruise ships rather, and it was one complete side of the Titanic. Uh, wow, incredible. Mm-hmm. And then he insisted on doing everything. Um, he replicated everything exactly. And uh, that's why the whole thing was such an, an enormous undertaking. I have enormous respect for James Cameron. Yeah. What balls the guy has. Mm-hmm. He just has brass balls, I tell you. He went down to the actual Titanic, I think, 10 or 12 times. And his brother is oh. the one who invented that, that snaky camera. You know, and the opening scenes it goes into the innards of the of the sunken Titanic. Um, very, very bright, very prolific, very. Uh, um, you're in the presence of of an unusual man, I would say. You know, mm-hmm. unusually bright and 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 um, inventive and, and and creative and yeah, it was a good experience. Mm-hmm. Well, um, are you working on anything uh, currently? No, I'm working on not working. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I just came back from visiting Germany and visiting with my old teammates. First time that I'd seen them in 60 years. And uh, wow. we were the smallest team to win the German championship, youth championship. And uh, so it was quite a trip to meet them. Most of them are very successful. A lot of my doctors and surgeons and, and lawyers and, and uh, very successful, I must say. It was interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's very cool. So I appreciate you coming and talking to me. But most of them have a new hip or a new knee or both, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, you pay for sports later on and then you better keep it up. You better keep on working out. Never stop working out. Never. If there's one piece of advice I can give, do not stop working out. Now, don't work out as intensely as you used to then. Uh-huh. We can't. But uh, never stop working out. And I think weights are at a very important part of that. You know, mm-hmm. walk a lot and do some weights, even if they're very light weights. I still do clean and jerks. It's one of the most efficient moves in weightlifting, from Olympic lifting. And except I don't go deep into my knees anymore. Mm-hmm. My knees are sort of mm, questionable. I got to be careful with them. But otherwise, I I keep it as strong. I do kettlebell a lot. Do you know kettlebell? Do um, you know what it is? That sounds familiar. I think uh, some old wrestlers I've talked to used to. It do is that. very efficient. Uh-huh. It gets your heart rate up in no time at all, and again gets the whole body. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Anyway, my man, it was nice talking to you. It was great talking to you. Uh, yep, and. Um, be cool and remain young and restless. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate this. Right on. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye. Bye.